0: You don't have to be a detective to realize <clears throat> the, the world in which we live is becoming increasingly sexually perverted. Sexual sin has always been around, but it seems like our culture is really on a racetrack to find out how far and how fast we can push the boundaries of what is normalized and acceptable. But what happens when you push boundaries? What happens when you push the boundaries is that things that used to be unthinkable become questionable, and things that used to be questionable become normal, and things that used to be normal become old-fashioned and prudish. One of the clearest ways we see this is in the whole transgender movement that's running 100 miles an hour in our world today. Um, If you've heard of or read Abigail Schreier's book, Irreversible damage. There's a, s- a statistic she gives in there that says that in the DSM 5, which is the kind of the standard for the mental health world as far as diagnostics of mental health things, she says it was reported that fewer than 1 in 10,000 people sought medical intervention for gender dysphoria. But in the past decade, the percentage of people who were looking to transition from one gender to another increased ten increased 1000% in America in the last 10 years. She also noted that in in the UK that number increased 4000% in the last 10 years. She also noted that 2% of all high school students in America in this is in 2017 in 2017 2% of all high school students in America identified as being transgender. What used to be unthinkable became questionable. What used to be questionable became normal. What used to be normal became old-fashioned. And as our culture pushes the boundaries of our sexual ethic to see where can we really go, we would be mistaken to think that has no impact or influence on the church. Whether we realize it or not, the sexual ethic of our culture impacts and changes even the way we as God's people think. Last December, a guy named Aaron Musser, who's a so called pastor, I don't think he's a real pastor, um, but a so called pastor at St. Luke's Lutheran Church in Chicago, dressed like a drag queen to preach his sermon. He posted pictures of himself on the church's Facebook page and he said today we consider what it might be like for the dress rehearsal for the kind of joy awaiting us on the other side of Advent. It's been so hard to know what joy will be like because it's been so long since some of us have been joyful. It's been difficult and and trying couple of years, and I've decided instead of telling you this is how I want you to be joyful as we prepare for the dress rehearsal, I figured I would instead put on a dress as so many who have inspired me have done. I decided to follow their example, showing that liberation from oppressive laws, I would assume he means God's oppressive laws, liberation from oppressive laws clears a path for joy. But allowing yourself to feel joy can be scary I wasn't sure how the outside world would handle me when it saw me this morning. Joy is difficult to feel. It's vulnerable. But isn't it beautiful? And to that I would say no. I also read this week on a website called queertheology.com that they posted several tips on how to help churches become more LGBTQ friendly in the way that they build their church website and in the way they structure their worship service. They said, among other things, does your statement of inclusion specifically mention both gender identity and gender expression? How do you refer to God on your website? Do you only use male pronouns? Or do you use binary pronouns? Do you have lots of gender-specific ministries and groups? If so, do you make it clear that transgender people are welcome in these groups? Do you have groups for transgender or non-binary identified people? And really, do you need gender groups at all to begin with? Do you mention that you welcome families with gender-diverse children? Do you mention that people can dress however they are comfortable? Unfortunately, the lack of sexual ethic in our culture is actually pushing into churches. Some churches are getting swept away by it and no longer even becoming churches, But all churches in some degree, all of God's people in some degree, are influenced by the the perversity of our culture that we live in. And that's not a new problem. In fact, that's the same problem that the Apostle Paul sets out to address in 1 Corinthians 5. The church at Corinth has been swept away by the sexual ethic and the tolerance of Corinth. In fact, they've been so caught up in the Um, the immorality of Corinth, that they've actually gone even beyond what secular culture finds acceptable. So if you have a Bible, let's read together 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 through 13. We're only going to focus on the first three verses, but we're going to read all the way through verse 13. 1 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 1. It says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles. That a man has his father's wife. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned. That he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present. Him who has done this deed... In the name of the Lord Jesus, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you are truly unleavened. For indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with the sexually immoral people, yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written not to keep company with anyone named a brother, who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner or even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves this evil person. Let's pray. Father, there are times when your word is heavier than others. There are times when your word hits harder than others. There are times when your word brings conviction and cuts us to the heart. But Lord, the same word that does that also brings the balm of the gospel to show us that even for sinners, there's forgiveness. Even for sinners, there's hope and there's eternal life. And Lord, I pray that your word will cut both ways this morning, that it will show us our remaining sinfulness, those things which we may have in our lives that are shameful. But Lord, as it cuts that way, I pray that it will also show us Christ is the solution. We pray this in his name. Amen. So, we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 3 this morning under three main points. They're in your bulletin. I'll give them to you now. First, we're going to see sin reported. We see that in verse 1. Sin reported. And then we're going to see sin responded to in verse 2. And then we're going to see sin repented of in verse 2 and 3. Let's begin looking at verse 1 where we see sin reported. Paul starts by saying it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. So Paul starts verse one by saying it's actually reported that there's this immorality among you. And one of the questions verse one raises is how is it that Paul came to hear these reports about the sin going on in Corinth? He tells us it's been reported, but how does he get that report? Well, if you've been with us for the past several months as we've been working through 1 Corinthians, maybe you remember back in chapter 1, verse 11, where Paul writes, It's been declared to me concerning you, brothers, by those of Chloe's household that there are contentions among you. So, remember, Paul's in Ephesus when he writes 1 Corinthians. He's working, building the church in Ephesus, and from there someone named Chloe in Corinth sends, Paul tells us they were her people, probably business associates, maybe employees. He sends, she sends some people to Paul, and she tells him there's some problems going on in Corinth, and Paul is prompted to write the letter of 1 Corinthians because of that visit. And so it may be that those of Chloe's household also carried this report with them. It may also be later, um, I think it's in chapter 12, I think it's chapter 12, Paul mentions that there were three other people, Stephanus, Fortunus, and Achaeus, who also came to tell him reports about Corinth. And so, whether it's Chloe's household, whether it's these other three men, more than likely, one of these groups came to Paul while he was there and said, by the way, the sexual ethic of Corinth has fallen off the cliff. And notice, Paul uses the word, the the report is that it is actually reported. The word actually in verse 1 does something for us, doesn't it? When do we use the word actually? We use the word actually to communicate shock and disbelief. So if I said, hey guys, I just got done running a marathon this morning and now it's time for church, you'd be like, did you actually run a marathon this week, this morning, it would be shocking and hard to believe if you know what kind of shape I'm in, especially then I'm standing here not sweating. And as Paul thinks about the kind of sin that's being reported and taking place in the church in Corinth, he says, it's actually reported. I find it shocking. I find it hard to believe. That's why the New Living Translation says in verse 1, I can hardly believe. I can hardly believe the report. So as Paul thinks about the the kind of sin that's being reported as coming from Corinth, it's shocking to him. It's not the normal kind of sin you would expect in a church. We do expect to find sin in the church. We expect to find gossip. We expect to find deceit. We expect even to find sexual sin in the church. But Paul says there's a sin going on in the church and it's shocking to me. It's hard to believe it's not the kind of sin I would expect to come out of God's people. Paul tells us it's sexual immorality. The word that he uses that gets translated sexual immorality is the Greek word porneia. And you can hear our word pornography, that's where it comes from. But in, in Greek, it's much more than pornography. It, this is the word that they would have used in Greek to talk about any kind of sexual sin. Any kind of sexual sin that took place outside of a monogamous heterosexual marriage, it could have gotten thrown into this word. It's the same word Paulo used use in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 13, where he says, food for the stomach, and stomach for the food, but God will destroy both, it and them. Now the body is not for porneia, it's not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And Gordon Fee, talking about this word, he says, the word has been picked up in Hellenistic Judaism always pejoratively to cover every expression of extramarital sexual sin and aberration. And so you understand that, that implicit in this word is the idea that God is not opposed to sexual expression. God is not opposed to sexual desire. But what God does is, he says, as the one who gives you your sexual desire, is the one who gives you opportunity to express yourself in sensual ways. I'm the one that gets to set the boundaries, I'm the one that gets to decide what's right and what's wrong. And and the biblical boundary that God has given us is that when one man and one woman get married, they are free to desire and express themselves in the confines of a monogamous heterosexual marriage. They're free. And it's a gift. It's amazing. It's something God has given us for our pleasure, for our joy, and for procreation. But outside of that fence... Outside of those boundaries that God has given us within marriage, he says this is porneia. This is sexual immorality. This is sin. And so any sexual expression with someone who is not your husband or your wife is what God calls immorality and sin so pornography, sleeping with your girlfriend or boyfriend, hooking up with strangers, having sex or having friends with benefits, going to strip clubs, going to sex clubs. These are the kinds of things that God looks at and he says, these aren't acceptable. These are outside of the bounds that I have given you. This is immorality. But in 1 Corinthians 1 11, it's interesting because Paul, Paul introduces the sin that he hears the report of, and he says, It's actually reported there's sexual immorality among you, but then he begins to define it, and it's even worse than you could imagine. He says, There's a man in the church who has his father's wife. More than likely, since Paul calls this, this woman his father's wife, he's probably not talking about a mother, he's probably talking about a stepmother. Although it may be that this is his mother and his father is still alive and this is his way of highlighting the perversity of it. Um, Either way, we don't know all the details. We don't know if the man's still alive. We don't know if the father knows what's going on, if he is alive. We don't know all the details and for that we should be thankful. We do know that this kind of relationship is clearly forbidden elsewhere in Scripture. Deuteronomy 22 verse 30 says, A man shall not take his father's wife or uncover his father's bed. Leviticus 18 verse 6 through 8 say, None of you shall approach anyone who is near of kin to him. In other words, not a close relative to uncover his nakedness. I am the Lord, the nakedness of your father or the nakedness of your mother you shall not uncover. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. The nakedness of your father's wife you shall not uncover. It is your father's nakedness. And so any, any form of sexual expression with people that are near in kin was strictly prohibited under the Old Testament law. And, and Paul looks and sees this is exactly what's going on in God's new covenant blood-bought community, and he says, it's shocking to me. I can't even believe the reports that I'm getting that there's people in the church that are engaging in this kind of sin. But notice what else he tells us in verse 1. He not only tells us there's a man who has his father's wife but he also tells us this kind of sexual sexual immorality is not even named among the gentiles essentially what paul's saying is that the, the that the the ethic of the church at corinth had been so swept away by the culture of corinth that the culture said there's a cliff here and the culture stopped and the church said let's keep going Uh, Even the, the secular culture of Corinth looked at this relationship and they go, we don't do that. We do all sorts of other stuff, but we don't do that. Part of why that's remarkable is because Corinth was not a puritanical hotbed of morality. Corinth was a city that was given over to sin. One of the most prominent religious features in Corinth was a temple to the goddess Aphrodite. And so just outside of the city limits, there was this, this big hill called Acrocorinth, and on top of this big hill, there was a temple to Aphrodite. And of course, Aphrodite is not worshipped like the true God. She's the goddess of lust, of sensual beauty, of sensuality, pleasure. And how was she worshipped? She was worshipped through prostitution. And and some historians say that she had up to a thousand prostitutes who worshipped her. And the way they worshipped her is they would descend into the city and they would seduce people into sensual acts. The Greco-Roman city of Corinth's view of sex is that sexual desires and urges were merely biological things just like eating. And so you get hungry and what do you do? You go find a restaurant. You get thirsty, and you go find a glass of water. You have sensual appetites, and what do you do? You go find someone, some way to fulfill those. In fact, the city of Corinth was so perverse in its sexual ethic that they actually took the, the word Corinth and turned it into a verb, and they would say to Corinthianize, and it was, it was simply a way of saying, this is a person who has been given over to immorality, and the reason Paul highlights in verse 1 that even the Gentiles don't do this is because he, he's creating a contrast in the minds of the church to help them realize, essentially what he's saying is, when you came to church this morning, when you read this letter that I gave you, you had to pass through a red light district. Some of you had to push prostitutes off of you on your way to church, some of you have have this this culture and you know it's there because you couldn't get to church this morning without it, but you know what, as perverse as the culture is in which this church is, the church has actually surpassed in immorality even the wickedness of this culture. What Paul's trying to do is he's trying to shock the church into seeing the thing that they are tolerating in the community of God's people, the world doesn't tolerate, The the world looks at what's going on in this church and they're shocked. They're disgusted. They say, even we don't do that. And what is the church supposed to be? The church is supposed to be light. The church is supposed to be salt. The church is supposed to be God's holy people. A chosen generation. A royal priesthood. They're supposed to be Christ's ambassadors to the nation to show the light and the glory of Christ. And what is this church doing? They have taken their light and they have shoved it under a bushel and they are even bringing shame in their community. And so that's the sin that's, that's being reported to Paul. But the question is, how is the church responding to it? How would we respond if we found out that kind of sin was going on in our midst? And that brings us to our second point, sin responded to. Look at verse 2. Verse 2 says, and you are puffed up. And have not rather mourned. In verse two, Paul tells us the way the Corinthians are responding to this sin is really two ways: one positive, one not positive in a good way; positive, like a positive assertion. The one thing they're doing, and one negative, one thing they're not doing. First, Paul says positively, "You're puffed up." Puffed up is just an expression; it's another way of saying they've become proud. They've become boastful. And of course, pride has been a thing, it's been a sin that Paul has been addressing over and over and over again in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, isn't it? He's going to continue to deal with their pride. And pride is not a new sin to Corinth. But here, what Paul's doing is he's saying there's a relationship between the way you view the sexual sin that's going on in the church and the way you're responding to it, and you're actually responding in pride. When Paul says the church is being puffed up about this sin, I think what he's saying is that the church is looking. They know this sin is going on. It's not, it's not hidden. It's not a secret. It's something everybody knows about. And what is the church doing? In their pride, they're looking at that sin and they're boasting. They're saying, look how tolerant we are. Look how progressive we are. Look how gracious we are. Look how accepting and welcoming we are. They're proud of the fact that they are now free supposedly in Christ. They are now free from all moral restraints, and the, and they have actually taken the grace of God and turned it into a license to sin. They're proud of the fact that they're an affirming church where anyone and everyone is welcome no matter who and how they are. That's the height of pride, isn't it? That's the epitome of arrogance, to look at the moral commands that God gives us and to think, I have actually moved beyond those and they're no longer binding on me. That's pride. When we see the commands of God and we say, cool command, I don't care, I've moved beyond that, that's old-fashioned I'm more progressive, I'm more educated, I'm more this. That no longer applies to me, and I can live my life the way that I want, and God doesn't get to tell me what to do. That's pride. When we look at the things that God condemns and we condone them, that's pride. That's a strong caution that all of God's people need to hear. It's a caution that reminds us that the world around us is trying to conform us to their morality. And we need to be vigilant. We need to be vigilant to say that whether they call us old-fashioned, whether they call us bigoted, whether they call us homophobic, whether they call us whatever they want, we as God's people don't get to change the standard because when we change the standard from the Word of God and the revelation that God has given us of what the standard is, we're not only guilty of sin in that area, we're also guilty of pride. It's a caution to us that whenever we tolerate sin, whenever we call sin anything other than what it is, sin, we are guilty of pride because we are toler- tolerating and celebrating things that God condemns. And so what should, the, what should the Corinthians do? That's what they're doing. They're looking at this sin going on and they're like, "Woohoo! we're so accepting. But how should they respond? That's the next thing Paul tells them is, sin repented of. We've seen sin reported. We've seen sin responded to. The the last thing Paul tells us is sin repented of, and we see that in verse 2 and 3. We're going to focus on verse 2 and 3 this morning. I'm actually going to read so we see the flow of thought, verse 2 through 8 one more time. It says, and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this thing, this deed, might be taken away from among you. For I indeed, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present, him who has done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be new lumps since you are truly unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth." So, the first way Paul tells the Corinthians they should respond to this sin is in verse two, and he says, instead of being puffed up, instead of bragging in how accepting you are, here's what you should be doing. You should have mourned. When you heard or when you saw, when you came aware of this man's sin, you shouldn't have celebrated and flown rainbow flags around. You should have mourned. The word mourn means to weep. It means to be crushed. It it describes a deep sorrow in your soul that actually moves your emotions. It's used elsewhere to describe the kind of sorrow that's associated with a family member who dies. Paul tells the Corinthians they're boasting, they're celebration of sin, they're parading flags around, they're bragging about their tolerance. That's the exact opposite of what God calls his people to do when there's sin in their midst. He says instead of celebrating it, it should crush you. Instead of celebrating it and being proud about it, you should mourn. One of the questions that raises for us is why is mourning the appropriate response to sin? There's a couple of reasons. One is the reason that's an appropriate response to sin is because all sin is in affront against our God. Our God is holy. Our God is nothing like us. Our God is different than us. He's separate from us. He is the God of all moral purity and perfection. And when we sin, when we fail to live as holy people, we are sinning against that one. We're sinning against our creator. We're sinning against our maker. We're sinning against our sustainer. And when we sin, it should break our hearts. It should bring us to tears because that's ultimately who we sin against. We sin against other people, but in an ultimate sense, that's the one we sin against. Another reason why mourning is the appropriate response to sin is because the church at Corinth is actually in their acceptance and celebration of this sin. They have become the exact opposite of what Christ has died to make them. Turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul tells us what Christ died to make this church. And they've actually, in 1 Corinthians 5, become the exact opposite. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2, Paul's addressing the Corinthians and he says, To the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, Called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. So in verse 2 of chapter 1, Paul told the Corinthians they've been sanctified in Christ. The word sanctified means to be made holy. They've been positionally made holy in that they've been placed into union with Christ and he has become their holiness. He's become their righteousness. They are separate from the world because they're in Christ, but they're also being sanctified. They're being conformed in their their ethos, in their behavior, in their life. They're being conformed into the holiness of Christ's image. That's God's goal in the death of Christ for his people. It's to make a holy people, to make a righteous people. Paul, Paul says the same thing in Ephesians five, twenty-five through 27, when he says, Husbands, love your wives just as Jesus also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might what? That he might sanctify her, that he might make her holy and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present to himself a glorious church. A church that doesn't have a spot or a wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Uh, the Corinthians should weep and mourn over their sins because God sent his son into the world to die on a cross to take their sins on, on himself and to purify for himself a people who are zealous for good works. And the Corinthians have now taken the grace of God and said, cool. We've moved beyond that, that holiness thing. We're not into that. We're into celebrating sin. They've become the exact opposite of what Christ has died to make them. So Paul says you shouldn't celebrate. You shouldn't be proud. You shouldn't boast. Instead, you should mourn. And that's how God's people should always respond to sin, whether it's their own sin or the sins of their brothers and sisters. They should mourn. It should break their hearts. Because all sin is in the front to God, and it's the opposite of what Christ has died to make us. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, who mourn over their sin, for they will be comforted. We have an illustration of this in the Old Testament in the book of Ezra. In Ezra 10, verse 6, it says, Ezra rose from before the house of God, and he went into the chamber of Jeroboam, the son of Eliashab. And when he came in there, he ate no bread and drank no water. Why? For he mourned because of the guilt of those who were in captivity. That's the response of God's people to sin. God's people respond not celebrating sin, but mourning over it. But Paul doesn't want the Corinthians just to mourn for the sake of mourning. They should mourn, he tells them in verse 2, for a reason. Look back at verse 2 and see the reason why they should be mourning. He says, you are puffed up, and if not rather mourned, and then notice the next word, that or so that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. So in the middle of verse 2, Paul transitions, and he says, you should mourn, and then he says that he who has done this deed might be taken away from you, and the word that is a purpose word it's showing the corinthians the purpose for why i'm telling you you should be mourning is so that you're mourning so that you're weeping so that your brokenness will actually bring you to an action and that's the mark of biblical sorrow for sin isn't it that's the mark of biblical repentance is that it's not mere sorrow it's sorrow that leads to action that's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7.10, there's a godly sorrow that produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. And in 2 Corinthians 7, Paul says there's two kinds of sorrow over sin. There's one kind of sorrow that's like, yeah, I'm sorry I got caught. I'm sorry that it's ruining my life. I'm sorry that it's whatever. And that, that sorrow is not biblical repentance, Paul says real sorrow over sin is actually a sorrow that leads to the action of repentance. And what's the repentance for the church at Corinth? It's interesting because the focus of 1 Corinthians 5 is not on the sin of the offender. The focus of 1 Corinthians 5 is on the church's celebration and sin in response to the sin of the offender. And Paul says if the church is going to corporately repent, they need to weep, but their re- weeping needs to lead them to the action of repentance, and that action would lead them to putting him out from among them, to, le- to taking him away from them. The same word that, that gets translated, take him away, is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Genesis 35. Notice what it says. It says, Jacob said to his household, and all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your garments. So in Genesis 35, it says that Jacob comes into his household and there's all these pagan idols, there's these false gods. And he says, Put them away. What does he mean, put them away? He doesn't mean put them in their cabinet, he means get them out of my house. This is a house where God is worshiped. He cleans house by getting the idols out of his presence. And that's the word Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 5 two when he tells the Corinthians, you should put this man out. You should remove him from the church. It means he should be barred from communion and not just communion, the Lord's table, the intimate fellowship of God's people. He should be barred from the assembly. He should be barred from the fellowship of the church is taking away as a clear reference to the church, removing this person from the assembly. It's a quick, swift, decisive act of church discipline where they're removing this man from the church. We're going to come back next. We can do at least one, maybe two sermons on church discipline. But for now, you have to notice Paul's telling us there are some sins which are so heinous that the sinner actually shouldn't be tolerated in the church. They should be removed from the assembly of the church. And maybe you hear that and you're like, what in the world? That doesn't sound loving. That doesn't sound very caring. I think John MacArthur makes a good point when he says, discipline is not inconsistent with love. It's actually a lack of discipline, in fact, that is consistent with, or it is, I misread that. It is a lack of discipline, in fact, that is inconsistent with love. The Lord disciplines his children because he loves them. And we will discipline our brothers and sisters in the Lord if we truly love him and truly love them. Think about it like this. What's more loving? To allow a man to continue, or a woman, to continue in soul-destroying sin, celebrating that sin or coming to that person and saying, this is a soul-destroying sin. This is a sin that unless you repent, it will wreck you. It jeopardizes and calls into question your salvation. And if you persist, your persistence demonstrates that although you may say with your mouth you're a child of God, your life proves differently. And we are recognizing that your sin is not okay. Church discipline is also loving not only to the offender because it calls him to repent and it puts into place things that God might use that would lead to repentance. It's also loving to the entire church, isn't it? Because we would be crazy to think that you can have that kind of sin going on in the covenant community of God's people and to think it doesn't affect us. Isn't that where Paul goes when he says just, two or three verses later, that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. What happens when dad wakes up on a Saturday morning and he's a grump? What happens when mom, after a long day of school, is just about to blow her top and she's just like edgy and like you can't even be around her? That emotion affects the entire family. And Paul says this kind of sin affects the entire church. This, this is the kind of sin that leaches into the rest of the body, and it's unloving to allow it to continue to do so. That's why he says in verse 6, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. A, a little sin affects the entire spiritual well-being of the whole church. And so it would be actually unloving to all of God's people to ignore sin, to pretend that sin isn't a big deal, and to allow it to go on while we celebrate it. This is a passage that gives us tons of application. So I want to wrap our time up by, by giving us several ways we can apply 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 3. I think the first way we can apply it is by recognizing this is a passage that should sober every one of us. Maybe you're not sleeping with your, with your stepmom. But understand, one of the principles this passage teaches us is that our personal and private sins have an impact and an effect on the rest of God's people. You don't sin ever in a bubble. You don't sin in a vacuum. This sin is leaching out. It's affecting all of God's people, and it's calling into question the testimony of the church, and that's a sobering reality. It's a reality that should cause each and every one of us to examine ourselves and say, is there unrepentant sin in my life? Are there ways that I'm treating my wife? Are there ways that I'm treating my children? Are there ways that I'm conducting my business? Are there things that I'm doing, things that I'm saying that are sinful? Because if there are, and we would all say in some degree and in some places there are, we don't sin in a bubble. When we sin, it affects God's people and it also brings a a reproach on the church second way we can apply this passage is by simply asking ourselves, when's the last time you mourned over sin? That's a godly response to sin. A godly response to sin is to allow the Word of God to bring on our heart the kind of conviction that would actually move our emotions that I see my sin is not a little whoopsie's. My sin is actually an affront against a holy God. My sin is actually me living in direct contradiction to the very end for which Jesus died on the cross. And to allow those realities to then break my heart and show me I'm totally undone. When's the last time you mourned over your sin? Another way we can apply this passage is by asking ourselves, are there areas in our lives that if they were exposed if God's people knew about them if they became public they would be shameful maybe they would even bring about church discipline understand that 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 all of us have sin in our lives And whether we think we can keep it under wraps, whether we think we can keep it hidden from God's people, at the end of the day, we don't live our lives before God's people. We live our lives before God, and we hide nothing from Him. He sees everything, and there's something twisted in our human nature that thinks my sin is okay as long as nobody else sees it. I'm sorry. God sees it. Actually, I'm not sorry. God does see it. He sees everything we do, everything we think, everything we say, everything we feel, and everything we wish we could say, think, and feel. So, there's something wrong with us if we think I'm okay as long as nobody sees my sin and escape the shame of that one. So, what should that reality do for us? The reality that we may hide our sin from each other, we may hide it from our children, we may hide it from our husbands, we may hide it from our wives, we may hide it from our brothers and sisters, we may hide it from the community, but at the end of the day, God has seen and does see every sin we commit. That should drive us to our knees. That should bring repentance. That should bring about an emotive state of our heart that says, this sickens me. I hate my sin. I no longer want to coddle and play with my sin and hide it because it's exposed to the eyes of him who sees all things. And we should confess it to our God and seek to turn away from it in faith and repentance. Another way we should apply this passage is actually in worship and praise. Say, how do you get worship and praise out of this? Because by God's grace, He has allowed us as a church not to be a church that celebrates and boasts in sin. We are not a sin-free church, but we are a church where sin is not treated freely. God's at work among us, and one of the ways we see Him working among us is that He doesn't leave us free in our sin. God is by his grace taking us as a corporate people and he he brings conviction when there's sin. He brings brokenness when there's sin. He's even at times caused us to use church discipline when there's sin. And all of this is because God is working among us to make us become the bride for which Christ died. And as we see that, does it hurt? Sure. Sure. Is it uncomfortable and awkward and weird and shameful and all sorts of other stuff? Absolutely. But at the end of the day, we see that taking place. We see the conviction. We see the repentance. We see the discipline. We see the offender coming back and confessing their sins, and we know this is God's grace. This is God's work among us. This is God fulfilling the promise that he made that he who began a good work in us will complete it until the day of Christ. And as we see it, it's awkward and it's painful, but it's beautiful. The final point of application I want to make is to anyone who is engaged in any form of sexual sin. Maybe you're engaged in sexual sin and you're engaged in it the way a Christian should be. I don't mean that Christians should be engaged in sexual sin. I do mean that if you're a Christian, there's a way you should engage it. And you're engaging it like a Christian should. You're fighting. You're resisting. You are naming and claiming and believing the promises of God. You are going to the Word of God to have your mind be renewed. You're, you're putting things in your life to safeguard you. You feel like Paul in Romans 7 when you're like, the things that I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I find myself doing them over and over and over again, and there's this war going on in your heart because you're like, I'm a blood-bought child of God and I shouldn't be doing this, but I also have this remaining flesh that's just ripping me in half. I feel like a mess, and I hate it. And you know what? My remaining sinfulness makes me feel dirty, shameful, and condemned. If that describes you, let me remind you what Paul says in Romans 8 1. He says, There is therefore, so, so Romans 8 comes after Romans what? You guys did way better at math than I did. Romans 8 comes after Romans 7. So Romans 7, Paul's like, I'm a hot mess. The things I want to do, I'm not doing. The things I'm not doing, those are the things I want to be doing, and I'm just like, and he comes to the conclusion, oh, wretched man that I am. This is the Apostle Paul. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Listen to what he says in Romans 8.1. There is therefore no condemnation To those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. All of the mess in Paul's heart is we don't know what sins Paul has in mind when he says the things I want to do I don't do and the things I don't want to do I do. We don't know what kind of sin he was struggling with. We do know this: he struggles with it. He views it as a lifelong struggle where he is engaged in the fight of faith, and he knows that there's a threat behind all of it that would lead him to actually abandon the the faith and to deny that he's a justified child of God. And so he comes in Romans eight one, and what does he say? There is, therefore, in light of everything that I've just said, there is no condemnation for anyone who is in Christ. And you go, what about the guy who still struggles with sin? What about the guy who fights and fights and falls and fights and falls? What about that guy? And Paul says, for him who is in Christ, there is no condemnation. It's not a little condemnation, there's no condemnation. Which means that we can actually continue to engage in the battle against sexual sin and we can do so with our eyes fixed on Christ and and remind ourselves that when I fail, oh yes, I fail. I fail as someone who does not look to my failure as what destroys my justification because my life is hidden in Christ. Which means... His righteousness has been imputed to me and I stand in God's presence not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law. I don't have a righteousness that comes because I have had five weeks of sexual purity. I stand having my righteousness not of my own but the righteousness of Christ that has been given to me and because I have that, there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ. But maybe you're engaged in sexual sin and you're engaged in it not like a christian that's how a christian engages sexual sin maybe you're not in it like that maybe you're given over to it maybe it dominates you maybe it controls you and maybe in the shame and in the the reality of the fact that you have been given over to sexual sin leaves you with all these questions like could i ever be forgiven could i ever find life could i ever find hope is there anyone, is there anywhere I can go to have the shame of my sin removed? And the answer is absolutely. Turn over to just a few pages to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. That's one of the things Paul addresses when he gets to 1 Corinthians 6. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9 through 11. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. You say, wait, I thought this was hope. He says, don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. If that's the end of this, this section, we're all done. But notice what Paul says after that. He says, and such were, past tense, and such were some of you. But what happened? He says, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Paul starts by saying, people who commit sexual sin don't inherit the kingdom of God. And he lists a bunch of other sins. He says, people who do these things don't inherit the kingdom of God, and we all go, I've done those things. I still do those things. So how in the world can I, as someone who has done those things, inherit the kingdom of God? What's Paul's answer? You're washed. You're sanctified. You're justified. How? In the name of Christ, by the work of Christ, which means that if we are engaged in sexual sin as someone who is not a believer, who is not repenting and trusting in Christ, there's a ton of hope here. Because the, the, the good news of the gospel is that God sent Christ in the world to save and to forgive and to justify and to ransom and to redeem and to give hope to sexual sinners. So that when Jesus dies on the cross, one of the things I think we fail to do is we just talk about Jesus dies for sinners in this ambiguous group. But you understand that Jesus took on the cross the consequences of every sin that every one of his people have committed. Which means that God the Father, when Jesus was on the cross, God the Father was treating Jesus like he was the one who slept with his stepmom. Like he was the one who cheated on her husband. Like he was the one who was looking at things on his computer that he should not have been. Like he was the one engaging in sexual fantasies that he should not have been. That's exactly what's going on on the cross. God is treating Jesus not like a sinner in general, but like a sinner who has sinned and done real sin. And he did that so that in Christ, God could exact all of the wrath that he had against sin so that everyone who trusts in Christ, everyone who says, I I, I can't help myself, I have no righteousness, but in Christ, I can have forgiveness of sins because he died for my sins. In Christ, I can have hope and eternal life because he rose from the dead three days later. And I can boldly and honestly and confidently come to him and confess my sin for what it is. It's a sin. It's a violation of his law. It's an affront against his character. And I can do that and I can confess it and I can admit it and I can ask him to forgive it. And I can do so in faith, believing he will, because that's exactly why Jesus died on the cross. And so if you're engaged in sin this morning and it's yet forgiven, there's hope. Like the Corinthian church, you can weep before your God. Like the Corinthian church, you can turn away from your sin and by faith you can believe in Christ and you will be forgiven. Let's pray. Father, there are some passages that make your gospel all the more sweeter. And Lord, it's passages that Expose our sin and show us that while we may not have done the exact same sins as the Corinthians, we're no different. We sin, we celebrate sin, we treat sin lightly. And Lord, we pray that your word will be at work in our hearts this morning to show us we can't deal with sin lightly. But we can deal with it and Christ has dealt with it for us. And Lord, I pray that you will use the preaching of your word this morning to drive each and every one of us back to the cross, back to the empty tomb, back to the place where you have once and for all fully and finally dealt with the shame of our sin and given us hope in eternal life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.